We've made it a kvias last year's to speak about um, somebody, uh, Adam Godel, who um, was either killed in the war or through it and so on. Two reasons why we do it. One reason is sometimes because of the trees you don't see the forest. And sometimes because of the forest, you don't see the trees. When you lump it together, and you say a lot of people were killed, a lot of people died, a lot of people, a lot of chasher people. So it's it's like a person takes, imagine somebody takes a, a dish that he put a lot of effort into making it with 101 different types of spices and this, that, and you gulp it down. So, okay, yes, I, I ate the thing, I ate the fish, whatever it is, but tachlis, there's so much more to it. There was so much. Each eris was an eris. And being misboinen, some of the arosim have some hemshech, some arosim, we don't know the hemshech. Being able to be misboinen on each tree, on, on each of those arosim, helps us get a sense of hurbim of what we're missing. We're not missing a lot of people. We're missing worlds and worlds and worlds. That's one angle of it. The second angle of it is that to talk about the Yanam of the Chorim, to sit back in a chair and say this, that, the other thing, I don't know, who are you to talk? But something has to be said and these people who were icing that sugya, the people who lived that sugya, are the people whose words give us words for that for, for, for that era, for that kufa. Whatever words we have should be their words. The only emotional integrity, the only something that doesn't count as yura, is somebody that went up in flames and said whatever he said. This year, I wanted to speak about somebody that many people know or heard, but it was a, a world, an, a, an entire world. His name was Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Kalbach. He was really the last Rav in Germany. He was Rav in Hamburg specifically. Um, the, the singer is a, is a uh, cousin. He himself had it, nephew after his, he himself has um, and they're all related, my brother in law, um, and he, his life, he was killed in the war, it's an incredible life, Mitzad, what he did, and Mitzad, how he approached the Yermadin Vanera, and the divitory we have from him, and, and so on. Um, most of it, his son of Schleimer, um, Schlitter was, he recorded it, it's a, it's a few hours recording on it. He put out two svarim, two books in English, one is biography, one is Yehudi, and one is um, translation of, of his German writings into, into English. He had a daughter who um, was a professor, I think by line if I'm mistaken, she put out different things from him. And his approach to Chinuch and other things which he collected. And there was a lot of witnesses 
like we'll see later on from his list, Kufa, those witnesses were published independently and also incorporated. That's where I'm coming from. That's where the material is from. And it's a person to an errors that we want to try to explain a little bit. He was born in 1883 in Lübeck. It's a small city, town in, in, in a town in Germany. His father, Flamer, was the rov over there. And uh, his father was a Talmud of Schoenfeld Hirsch and Fildesheimer. He himself learned with a private Malamit. Um, his father had a Malamit for him. Um, and he, his father also learned with him. He um, studied later on in the Rabbina Seminar of Rabbi Israel Heldesheimer and University of Berkeley, Berlin. Now, let's, uh, before we go further, I just want to give a little bit of a background understanding. Germany in that Kufa had very little in the way of yeshiva learning as we know it. Even the seminary, they, they, they had, the from schools that they had gave over very little Gemara. They had a huge load of Lumuri Choyl. They were very, from people were very well educated. They were, they were from dedicated, very few really. Um, and we'll see that what his life unfolded like. He went to university and concurrently to the Rabina Seminar. He was a brilliant math student. He was brilliant in general. He studied not as undergrad, but in he studied under Planck. Um, he, uh, he studied under many very prominent figures in Berlin. This was Berlin at that time was a huge place academically. He, um, he was asked to write for a very prestigious journal um, a, and, and to, to explain to people Einstein's theory of relativity in a way that people would understand it. He was extraordinarily brilliant in many areas. Um, later on, we'll see when he, when he used to teach, he could, he could substitute based on any topic that was asked, from language to math to history to anything. Very extraordinarily brilliant. At the age of 22, he finished his undergrad degrees, and he was offered um, a job in Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim at that time, there was a school that tried to combine, to some degree, Kodesh and Choyl. The Yishuv, the old Yishuv looked askance at it, was quite, quite against it. Um, he went to teach. The, he was so he was so erlich and so chashiv that despite the ban and so on, Shmuel Salant took a personal liking to him. He was a, a, a ben ahuvim for Shmuel Salant, and when he left later on, Shmuel Salant sort of asked him about coming back again and so on. Um, he was incredibly able. He taught sciences. He was able in every science class to give over, in every math class, to give over Yiddishkeit. Rebbe's son, was once in Yisrael and was dabbing somewhere in Kataman. Two people came over to him, they heard his name, they asked him if he's related. They said that they went to that school they were totally non-religious, and because of his father, this from a Yidden Shemitah Mitzvah, Hadayim Azeh. 
He spent there three years, and it opened up for him a world of a whole different genre of Yiddishkeit. The, the dveikos, the warmth, the, 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 everything that the old Yishev had made a profound impression on him and an understanding of what, what's necessary, an understanding of where Torah could go, something that was very, very hard to get within Germany itself. He then went back to uh, Germany. He, um, was, he pursued his doctorate in mathematics. He was drafted in World War I. And he was put in charge of building um, a school system for the Jews, from Jews in the Baltic states. Germany had conquered the Baltic states, and he was put in charge of it as a chaplain with such credentials and education. He was put in charge of making a school system. Litter. In the Baltic states, especially Litto of the Baltic states and the other parts of Litto that fluctuate back and forth between Russia and Poland and so on, basically had Yiddishkeit and Jewish education had fallen apart. The big yeshivas were in parts of Litto, but girls had zero education. Young children went to Chadorim and parents less and less were inclined to send kids to Chadorim. Hadarim had no educational plan to themselves. They, they were all over the place. They were crepid, everything. And it was, a, it was a, a rolling snowball. People took their kids out and put them in schools. Schools were not from schools, basically. And the door basically went disintegrated. This was before World War I. World War I came around, and World War I destroyed anything that had been there. Most of the Jews in Lita were sent away. The Tsar felt that they would be too inclined to be friendly to the Germans, um, and therefore he shipped them off. When they came back, everything was, the community structure was gone, the killer structure was gone, Rabbanim, nobody cared about. Everything was harv. Rav Kalbach was miyasid, the first from girls' high school. It was known as the Kalbach Gymnasium, Shaitai and a network of schools. And my aunt went to that gymnasium, and, and she was extraordinarily um, from person. He, he, he took what Germany had learned, understood that lit at that time needed it, and created a whole school system. Eventually, tells her of the roadblock with him together, he phased it out, took it over, basically, but that became, that became the bedrock for from jury and litter between the wars. It's incredible. It's like Keller says, a person came with his chachma, saved the city, and never forget about it. People don't realize he was the one who saved it. He was the one who was able to get money out. To, the yeshivas were starving. And they had no connection outside. He used his connections to get to be able to get money. Transferring money was, was impossible in those days. 
because this was uh, the, the Germany was shaylor over this, this was shaylor over that, and they couldn't and, and they couldn't get money. The Ruben Gazovsky, once met somewhere, and he heard his name. He said, "Are you a son of?" He said, "Yes." He said, "If not for your father, all the yeshivas would have been closed down in Lita." He said, "Your father was the one that was able to get the money, to able to channel it appropriately because he had such a high position." So on. There was he was he was extremely. Diplomatic, he knew how to get his way, but he also could speak Emmis. There was a story there that he had. They once brought the Germans, once brought a group of um, East European, Russian, Polish prisoners to Damin Shul. The Jews were allowed to Damin Shul, and in Shul they had on one side German Jews sitting. On one side, the, the East European prisons of war. And Rav Kalbach spoke very strongly. He said, we didn't ask for this war, you know, pitting brother against brother. Yid has to fight against the Yid. But now that Hashkocha put us together, maybe it's we, the German Jews, need to learn from the East European Jews. You need to understand something, and I want to talk this out. German Jewry, from the lowest, from the least observant, to the almost very observant, had a lot of disdain for East European Jewry. Mostly those who lived there, who even lived there. They, they felt themselves superior, nothing to learn from them. And, and it was very, it's very fascinating, because Germany borders on East Europe, and it, and it was really light years ahead in terms of modernity. But he had met and seen the yeshivas in Europe, and he understood that that's the Nisham of Yiddishkeit. And without bringing that into Germany, German is dead. He, he took with him, when he went back after the war, he took with him a very, an Adam Chashev, a binav, from, from, from Litter, two or three other people, and wherever he was, a Rav or whatever, he made a yeshiva and had him be the Rosh Yeshiva. In other words, his exposure to East, Eastern Europe made him understand that maybe the goof of Yiddishkeit, Germans are better at sculpting the goof, the structure, the curriculum, and so on, the Nisham of Yiddishkeit is over there. And he made the point of it. They, the Germans were not happy with that speech when he said that you know, we didn't ask for this war, they, they held it was a pacifism, they sent them away Baruch Hashem, they had to use a lot of protection, for a few months they sent him to the front, they got him back but his, his, his putting one foot into both worlds was him so he bets him saved Litvish Yiddishkeit no one remembers him no one, no one knows. My father remembered. My father's born in 1903. Um, he put down the seminary, he put down the school system, the school structure, and Tells took it over and ran it, um, the Avnus system, and so on. This, this, was, this was his doing. And he understood that if a Yiddish guy is to, is to remain, then the Shana is someplace else. 
he brought this Rebbe Binov and two or three other people, Bachar and whatever, wherever he went, and had them make a yeshiva of some sort, a of some sort. He would defer to him. Um, he also, later on, 1930-31, he got very involved in Aguda. And the main issue was money for the yeshivas in Eastern Europe. Um, they were poor. The situation was very difficult. And they didn't have connections and everything. So there were a few German Askanim who got very involved. And he led a fact-finding mission, so to speak, to look at the different moistis in, in Eastern Europe. It's, 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 it's a masterwork. It stands a Yemazet. He describes to German Jews what Yachl is, what Chavetz Chaim is. They say about Chavetz Chaim, Reb Chaim Slabotka. All of these yeshivas, all the oil material, it was under the, he needed it, he needed to portray it as a fact-finding mission. But Tachlis, it, it, it was education. He needed to educate why the German Jews and those in Western Europe, maybe in America, who, who had resources, needed desperately to support all these moistas. Because this is the of these places. And he was the one who understood it. He knew how to write it in the German. I don't just mean the language. I mean the whole Metzius of it. And he was the one that his own Neshama was yearning from there. That was him. The war was over. He went back to, um, he, he went back and he married his wife. He was older already. Um, her name was Lotte Preuss. Her father was a very Erlachayid, a doctor. Her father had, Julius Preuss, had written a book explaining different biological terms in the Gemara, what they refer to, what they mean, and so, so forth. And um, he and then he, um, a short time later, his, he was still in Sabatka, Kavna. His father was Nifta. And he was called back to take over Rabbanis. He dallied because he wanted to make sure that he had the right people to take over the Moistus he had created and put in a staff of people that needed to be put in and then was able to come back and take over Rabbanis Nubek. And um, that was, so his, his, he, 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 he was Yenik from two worlds. He had the upbringing of the German Yid, and it's best. And he saw what Yidin, like Abshul Salant, what, what, what the Dur looked like in, in Yerushalayim, and what the Ilma Yeshivas looked like in Eastern Europe. And in many ways, probably is what gave him his, his unique stature. He went back to Germany, and he was Rav Lubeck for a short while, and then he became a, um, he took over the Talmud in Hamburg. Now, he, um, he taught there for, for, he ran the school for quite a few years. His daughter put together a lot of his Mishnah Sachinov, of what he believed in, but I think more than what he believed in, I like to give over a sense of what it was like. Um, he was, you have to understand something, Germany in those days was 
most of the Yidin were not observant by the standards we would put to it. Most were total amaratsim. The people who believed, who, who kept the mitzvahs, were strong people, dedicated people, good people, but really not learned. Um, and um, the school structure, the German government demanded so much from the Chol, it wasn't really shy to teach in any meaningful way Gemara. And you had a classroom of kids who had decided they want to go to a Jewish school or they liked a particular Rabina or whatever it is. But they really, um, they, they knew very little, they cared very little, and so on. He was an, a, 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 an extraordinarily powerful teacher. First of all, he was indescribably brilliant. He could, you know, they, they could put him in any, in any classroom he was going to teach, he would teach. He also had a very different personality. A typical German um, authority person, besides being stern and strict, very dry, impersonable. He was full of life and passion. He was able to navigate from every share of his, he was able to, every, every class of his, not share of his, every time he could teach science, he could teach literature, he could teach poetry, and then come out with a lesson, a Torah lesson. And this was critically important. These kids, they believed in Heine. They didn't believe in, in anything else. And when, when you can triumphantly show them how Heine pales or got the pales in comparison to what, to, to what we have. It was very, very necessary. And he had a profound impact on his kids. There was one more aspect of his teaching style that was incredible. Whenever he would teach a Lamudic Kaidish class, it would always finish with what they called in German Andacht, which translates either as prayer or divine service. He would say he was he had a remarkable voice, Kalbach's have, and remarkable emotional depth. And he would he would start he would say he would pick a pusik that sort of encapsulates the lesson that they learned and sing it together to class. And they write the back, they you know, most people who remember being in his class, they'll always say, they'll remember a song that he taught him. And he said, a lesson that's taught with a song is forever inscribed on the hearts of, of a child. It's, it's a, a whole different world of, 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 of neshama and, 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 and um, emotion and regish kedusha brought in together. He was, he ran that school and then he was elected Rav of Altona. Altona was sort of a sister, small, small, much smaller town, I don't know, than Hamburg. It used to be three communities together. Uh, Altona, Hamburg, Wolfsburg, they were together. He became Rav of Altona. And at some point later, in 1936, he was elected Rav of Hamburg. This is the final part of his life but really the beginning of the final part of his life. We'll talk a little bit about some of these things over here. Um, in 1930, 
three. Hitler came to power. Hitler came to power, and basically the end began. German Jewry could still emigrate, and people knew that staying there was not good. On the other hand, German Jews were extraordinarily assimilated in terms of emotionally assimilated into Germany. The struggle of the Jewish Germans and German Jews was a major issue. There was haste. It was that's what it was. And when Hitler came to power, a lot of Jews decided that the best thing to do is to opt out of the Jewish community. They didn't want to become Christians. That was no longer important. It wasn't something that was, you know, that, that was important by the Nazis and for them. But they would simply walk out of the Jewish community. And um, one of the first things, so in this Tkufa, 35, so 31, 33 is when he became, when Hitler came to power and things started going from bad to worse. He wrote a letter, he wrote in a yearbook of Kaldach the following. He says, in such a time of, of distress, you want to leave the Jewish community and and have the people and, and abandon the people struggling? What kind of what what kind of respect will that generate from a guy to you if he sees that a representative of the community abandoned and betrayed his own people? I am accusing you in front of him. You are the enemy of the Jews. You're the anti Semite. You're the the ally of Hitler. No Nazi um, slander can, can, can affect our, the covet of our nation who believes in a single God in, in, a, in, a, in a moral world and, and, uh, and, and in mutual respect. But your betrayal, your treason, that destroys the covet of Kal Yisrael and, and, and its internal harmony. <coughs> Leaving the community today is like, is, is like converting the old days. Both of them have the lowest of the possible um, drives, selfish and physical. If you have even a spark of self-respect and dignity and, 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 and a smidgen of, of, of Akar Satov for who you are and the cover you deserved, you need to recognize that you must remain faithful to your community and to give and to sacrifice willingly on the, on the, on the altar of love for, uh, and, and spirituality of Kali Yisrael. Um, and so on. People were beginning to, to want to leave. They didn't want to leave Germany. They could have left Germany. But they wanted to stay in Germany and stop being Jewish. He had and included himself that entire gamut of Kehillah, whether it was an Altona, whether it was a Hamburg, that's what the Kehillah was. It ranged from people that never did anything and 
they just declare themselves as Jews, and now they want to take that step and undeclare themselves as Jews. To people that were Shleimei and Muni Yisrael and, and, and even Hasha people. In 1935, <coughs> he was able to take, because of a whole series of things, he took a trip down to Israel. He was asked and begged to stay there. And to, and to uh, you know, they, everyone knew that the sword is hanging over Germany and people were leaving in droves. Um, he decided that a Rav does not abandon his community. He felt it might also, the Germans would use it as some sort of excuse or whatever it is. And then he, um, and he came back. He was, quite a few times, he was offered visas to England. Some of his children, older children, went there. He himself refused. And he said, a Rav doesn't leave his kehilla. And he knew he's needed. He, um, the, the, in Berlin, at that point, offered a rabbis. Berlin was the city in Germany. And he told them he would take the job. But anything else with Yiddishkeit is his domain. They agreed, they were so desperate, people had left, and he was such a towering figure. His, 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 his oratory, his German, his, his, his credentials, everything about him was big. And they wanted him. And he, he looked at the shul, and he needed two tikkunim about where the Ahmed would be, where that would be. And they, they said, why, do we, why are we quibbling about small things? You know, you'll come, and then, and then, and then uh, you know, we'll talk about it. And he said, no, his principle is halacha, is the Rav's domain, and that's it. And at the end, he didn't take it. Hamburg came and offered him in 1936 Rabbanis, and that's when he came and took the Rabbanis. Germany in 1936 was dying. People were beginning to leave and to leave and to leave. People would see the handwriting on the wall. And people really, um, it, it, it was, he didn't take for himself, and he was taking on a rabbonis that was really going to be shepherding people to their end. And let's hear what he says on the installation speech. He started, he, he, there was a, was a magnificent ceremony. The shul in Hamburg was an incredibly beautiful shul, considered possibly the most beautiful shul in, in, in Germany, in Europe. And the ceremony was the way Germans make a ceremony, all pitch of kiss. And then when he got up to speak, he said, he spoke about his rebellion. He spoke about what, what he saw in them, the tremendous Tamil Chachamim, and the tremendous. Um, Anova, there's a very big thing with Anova, he's writing letters to his children about how he, he's happy with how humble they are and so on. And he said, my ideal of a rabbi was molded after these men. He says, if the message of Torah will resound forcibly from my mouth, if I can, if I can make the words of Torah as clear as possible, that can only be with Seattle I'll try to let everyone experience the magic and peace of mind that comes with Blat Gemara. 
Success, however, depends upon a supporting hand from on high. But what I do pledge to you this hour is as follows. He quotes a passage from Zechariah. Koyam Hashem Tzvokis, Bayomim Ahema, Asheyachziku Asar Anoshim, Bikol Shoynes Hagoyim, Vechziku Bechnaf Ishihudi Leymar, Nelchim Mochem, Kishaman Elkim Mochem. There'll come a time when ten people from all sorts of Goyim will grab onto the tzitzes of Yid and say, Go with us, because we've heard that God is with you. He quoted that Pasik. And he says, What I do pledge in this hour, and what is my heartfelt aspiration and longing, is that my house and my heart will be wide open to everyone. I will cry and laugh with you and bear all the anguish of your soul with you. I will regard the honor of having been called to this rabbinical position only as an obligation to relate towards everyone with simple menshachkeit. Scharia, too, does not predict that those seeking God will choose as their guide a prophet or a priest or a master of the law, but they will hold on to an ishihudi, a Jewish person. Similarly, I assure you that whoever hopes to find me confident strength may be certain to find me an ishihudi, a Jewish brother. Those words were kept to the last dot in those words. 1936, he was installed as the Rav in Hamburg. And then in um, 1938, Kristallnacht happened. It was over Hamburg. Rabbanim were beginning to leave. More and more people were leaving. More and more fell on his shoulders. It was a tkuf in his life when he wrote a book, a sefer, in German, on Kohelis. Kedarko, he wrote on the Vian. The Vian was, was his platform. And I think it has something to do with understanding the tkufa. Kohelis was sound, it's right for the tkufa. And he managed to put it out. It's, it's printed, it's there. We have it. In 1938, Kristallnacht came. Kristallnacht was the waking up to a nightmare of German Jewry. Till Kristallnacht, they, they still people, yes, no, bad, worse, better. Kristallnacht was an incredible pogrom. Someone came and told him that the, um, someone came and told him that they're burning the shawl down. He ran. The shawl was was being destroyed, burnt. He, he came in through a side entrance. There was a small side entrance for the Rav, which led up to the Kaidish. And he confronted the Nazi, burning Sifra And he told him, this book is holy for both of us. Won't you spare it? We both believe in it. The German beat him up terribly. And it was Nisei Hashem that he managed to wiggle out in that same entrance way, ran to a doctor's house, and stayed the night. I think the next day, 30,000 people were called up to be deported in Germany. He was sure that he would be called to be deported. And he dressed in big day Shabbos. His son, telling over, was asked why. He basically said, think about it. When a person goes to Mikhail Shemayim, Big Day Shabbos. This is the high point. This is this is this is 
It wasn't. And it would stay with the Kehillah as it was dying and falling apart. It was constantly encouraging and so on. They rededicated a few months later another shul. There's a picture of him rededicating it with, with a ceremony, with this, with that. It was a very, he was an upbeat person and he always held. And his point that he makes in Kehillah is Kehillah doesn't deal with death for death's sake. It deals with death to give us a lens to focus what life should be lived. Matzah baking, there was one matzah bakery, on and on. He spent his time visiting people in jail. The journalists were constantly jailing people, deporting people, helping getting visas for people, getting him out, and, and on and on. In 1939, his wife got visas for the kids. His wife took the older kids to London, to England, and had them put, put up with families. People there pleaded with her to stay, and they said, don't get everybody else out. The, the, and she said, if the Rav's job is to be with the Kehillah, then my job is to be with the Rav. And she went back. He had a lot of fights and struggles in that Kufa. He had to, on the one hand, be Mechazic people. For a German to be considered a um, second class, third class, to be considered different, they, they were very conscious of pride, they conscious of being German. The yellow star that they had to wear that was horrible and he spoke about it and he spoke about being proud of the yellow star he, they, the Germans made it clear that everyone had their name a, a Jewish woman in Israel he proudly used to sign like that to, to that you know and he, and he spoke about being proud of it he once mentioned in a speech that Tzorah Yehudim said that the Reich is going to last a thousand years. And he spoke with a lot of courage. He said, whether it'll last a thousand years or not, I don't know. But one thing I can tell you, that in 5,000 years from now, Yidin will still be saying Shema Yisrael and be learning Teres Emes, because Teres, Teres Emes, and Teres Nitzvahs. He, um, he would go from... October 41, Jews began to become deported. Now, in that Kufa, as things were winding down, um, there was a lot of fights. He had had a lot of struggles in the Kehillah. One of them was they they had appointed the, the board that ran the Jewish community had decided that kosher meat is too expensive, what's unavailable, and therefore they need to give trefer meat in all the moistness. The, um, he came to that meeting and he spoke extremely forcibly and he um, and, and insisted that it's not he talking that um, a person can, that, that they should 
have treifer meat. They told him it's pikuach nefesh. He said, my children have not eaten meat in years. Baruch Hashem, the fine and well, it's not pikuach nefesh. And they overruled him. He said that we're living in a tkufa of divine mishpat. We need to uplift ourselves and to show that we're worthy of struggling with it. This is a tkufa where HaKadosh Baruch is judging us and testing us. And we need to show ourselves worthy of it. Everyone needs to be a shunt of this Kiddush Hashem. He was overruled and the last words the Pinkas of Kehillah of Hamburg are his words of protest and saying we live in a time of mishpat when we have to protect the vacation, not run away from it. A sense of what, of what it was like. The person who ran the meeting, who was the head of the, of the Jewish organizations, was a very assimilated Jew who had tried, he had made it, he had felt that the Nazis would be very, very comfortable with him because he's such a German Jew, such a German person. And at the meeting, when, when he tried to use different arguments, arguments, one of his arguments was, how can we feed the kids treif when we're teaching them in class about the chiv tit kosher? It's, 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 it, you know, it's a contradiction. So he answered, well, they should stop teaching him that. That was, that was, that was what he was dealing with. As a sad uh, ending to, this, to that story, this person um, was slated to be deported. The night before he was deported, he and his wife committed suicide, which was unfortunately very com- quite common among Samaritans. And he wrote, we had just been given the notice to be deported from Hamburg. Living away from Hamburg, our home city is unthinkable, therefore taking our lives. And he left the Tzavah, that he should have a simple ceremony with no Jewish um, additions to it whatsoever. That was the Ketzeh of where German Jewry had no later fallen apart on. And this was people that he had to deal with. And he dealt with it. And he dealt with it with Chachma and with Sreth. There was a woman that came to him, totally married to a guy with a child. And the Germans agreed. She tied it, she's not Jewish, whatever. She tied it, she's not Jewish. So they said if she gets a letter from Rev Kalbach from that, that she's not Jewish, they'll accept it. So he wrote a letter. This is to testify that Mrs. So-and-so has never ever paid dues to her community, has never shown up to any of our communal functions whatsoever. Signed, and they accepted it. On the one hand, saving a life, he should. On the other hand, to, to, to take some... So with Chachma, he said she never paid dues and she never attended functions. But that was the people. That was the range of people. The Ruach was there. And, and, and he had to constantly go back and forth between being the Hazard people and standing firm and strong. The people wanted to leave totally and check out a community, which at the end they couldn't. The people who tried to bring in the Parfis and so on. He stood very strong 
and spoke constantly. There was a Ben Adam Lechaveri that bothered him a lot. And he spoke about it. And I'll read in one of his, one of his powerful speeches, which has a lot to do, I guess, with um, German mentality. spoke about that it's, it, in Germany, I guess it was popular or it was um, very strong, there was a very strong sense of class <coughs> division in Schulz. And he spoke very sharply. He said that people are beginning to return to Schulz because of the pressure of the times. People want to be misguided. If they come to a shul where there's a caste system and the wealthy people are the ones who have it and the, and the important people are the ones who have the aliyahs and the kibudim and the this and that and the other people left out it will drive them away from Yiddishkeit. And everybody has an achrayas at this time to, to welcome in. A way has to be found where everybody can be incorporated. It spoke very strongly about how you know people rejected other people and so on. In October 1941, they began deporting the Jews from Hamburg. The deportation was mostly, I believe, if I say correctly, to a uh, place in Latvia called Jungfernhof, and the road went down with every train spoke to people, was mechazik them. They were able to take food to them. It was a little bit, the, the, the going there was a little bit more menschlich than, um, than the uh, Polish and the others. So they were able, they arranged, everything was organized to, to, to get them some food, clothing, whatever they needed, and the rough would be down to see off every train. On December 6th, his turn came. Him and his wife, and the kids are with him, including Rav Shlema, who lived through all of it, and lived through many more camps afterwards, and came out, and, and so on, ended up learning Shivas. But that was 19, in, in 1941, December 6, 1941. The, going on to the train was, the train was at least menschlich. It was something that the German, it was still Germany, so despite everything, but it was heated, it, did, you know, it wasn't cattle cars. They picked up passengers along the way, including a brother of his, Reb Shimshin, from Lubeck. They traveled a few days through Lithuania, Latvia, and finally they emptied out the train in Jungfernhof, and they went from something that uh, could be categorized as somewhat human, to the same type of matzav as the Polish Jews, Lithuanian Jews, to Gehenim. The doors open up, the dogs, the guards, the, the hitting with the guns, the whole, the whole thing. People were devastated beyond words. They, they'd come from some sense of humanity in, 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 into a shoyal tachtis. And they were forced to march three miles through snow, through bitter cold Latvian winter, to the camp. Rabbi Yosef Kalbach 
held on to his um, held on to his brother. His brother's older, not in good health. Helped him schlep to the three miles, and his brother collapsed and died at the entrance way to the, to the camp. He was he he quickly got him a kavura, said a kaddish, and passed him the last person that had some semblance of of, of a levaya or kaddish, whatever it is. And then they were pushed into barracks. He was given a special accommodation, like a little hole someplace. He didn't have to be with everybody else. He said, I'm with everybody else. When I'm with everybody else, I can mechazik. And he did use that little hole for whatever it was, uh, for different uh, getting together, whatever it is. But he was with everybody else together in the barracks. It was a hydration camp. People were stuffed together, inhuman, undignified, everything. And he was what gave people courage. A description of him. Anybody, he, he went around from people to people and was comforting everybody who died. And tons of people died every day. He would hobble over to the person, be Menachem, and say a few words, say a few words of eulogy. He went from person to person to person. A description of what it was like um, for, for other people. Um, somebody uh, said that the, um, it, it was... Somebody writes about her friendship with one of his daughters... She says, every other parent watched their children like hawks. Her parents, Naomi was her name, were busy with everybody else. So I had it to myself, and she was a ray of light in my life. He organized the kids into schools. He felt that as long as there's something there, so he organized into school. You understand that, you know, he got this person to teach all here, teach all there. He would talk to them, he would sing with them. Just Pasha to give it a tzura, a human tzura. The people there had come from some sons of humanity to a place that was totally subhuman. And over there, he began and he organized and talked and worked and comforted. 24-7 was busy. There's a description here of what a Hanukkah was. This was not long after they got there. As we men returned to the concentration camp from work, we heard that there was to be a Hanukkah party for the children in the large men's block that evening. Rav Kalbach gathered all the children together to celebrate the Feast of Lights with him. The wind howled, and all was cold and bare. Everyone stood crowded around the stove, wrapped tight in their coats. Then suddenly the bright voices of many children in, in their wretchedness and misery resounded. The chief rabbi stood in the midst of the children holding two small boys by the hand. On the stove in front of him, two candles burnt. The old familiar melodies that we once sang at home rang out. The singing ceased, and Dr. Kalbach began to speak very quietly, which held all spellbound. The entire block was silent while he spoke. Here and there, people sobbed convulsively and dried their eyes to his consoling words. After the final prayer, he distributed little bags of sweets to the children. Their eyes shone as they were led from the large men's block by nurse's school teacher.
Nafkabach also arranged by mitzvah ceremonies in, over there. And then again, they had religious services, they taught them lessons, speeches, it's something extra from the kitchen. Nafkabach did his utmost on these terrible circumstances to instill in the bar mitzvah boy his new status and duties and to celebrate this day happily within the circle of his gathered relatives and relations and friends. One was not conscious that this room was a cold store. Warmth simply radiated Rav Kalba. He also had a shear, a shear in Sefer Eof that he gave, which he felt was very apropos. And he spoke about suffering. Were there to be no suffering in the world, humanity would be born into paradise and life would have little purpose. God did not create suffering in the world as punishment, but as, an, as instruction to humanity. Humanity's task is to toil for the exterior and interior perfection of the world. The greater the task God sets mankind, the more severe the trial of suffering. He would tell people, and he writes also, they would tell people, you have to mechal Shabbos. This whole Shabbos is not necessary. He would pass them, call Shabbos. This same person who sits so strongly against being, against eating treif in the, in the moistus, a woman writes that he, he urged her very strongly to eat the treif. He told her that it's a shayla of nefesh for her in the camp, and the same mitzvah that there is not to eat treif all year, now there's a chiyah for her to eat treif. He, he did what he could to give humanity to give some semblance of humanity to the place. Dignity. His son describes the same Hanukkah scene a little bit differently. He said people were basically going crazy. They had come to a, to a world that was, that was, they walked straight into, in, into Gehenna, and people were losing it. And he walked into the barrack, the same storm color, right? the same scene, the way he describes it, in person. He walked into the barrack, he says it was other chaos and pandemonium. And people were, some people were like almost crazy ranting, people yelling to us. And slowly his father began speaking, and quiet descended. And people were drawn into it. And a whole different surah enveloped the place. That was him. He, son writes a description of him, incredible description of what it was like. He writes, somebody else writes, this is a person called Joseph Katz, who writes about a letter that he got. He was transferred to a different camp, and his mother remained in, in Jungfernhof. He finally got a message scribbled on a piece of paper. My dear Joseph, your mother died last night of a stroke in the arms of Chief Rabbi Kalba. She recited Shema Yisrael, she did not suffer. That's the letter. And then Shlomo adds his observation of what was happening. They died in his arms. They died holding his hand. They died in the whisper of his prayers. They died in tears. Theirs and his intermingled. Scores of them died every day and night, pleading for the rough to be at the side in the last moments. His great heart treasured all the heartbreak poured out to him as they departed from this hostile earth his noble soul holding on to every tear shed in the agony of despair. He carried the sacred burden with him 
And when the call came for him to ascend to a higher world, his outcry is to a higher world. No outcry shall be lost, no tear shed in vain. That's what his son described, his father. His father was there to see if a Kanshproko gave a few more months of life to people that a child who maybe never ever before learned olive base would sing a Hanukkah song, would have a bar mitzvah, would hear what it means to be yid, would understand what Kiddush Hashem is, would go in, people would go in understanding that there's a much big, bigger picture to life. That this Gehenim is not a Gehenim for Gehenim's sake. Stepping stone to something else. That was his life. As his own turn came, the, um, there was a woman there. So a week before his own, his, he was called Chesnissen, a week before that, he, um, he, he, he realized that they told him they're going to be moving them. So he said that a, um, he said that uh, he needed matzah, didn't know where they're going to. So there were a few people in the, um, there were a few people in the uh, camp who worked in some sort of auto shop where they had access to a fire. They engineered some sort of um, oven, and they baked matzahs. They had a few matzahs prepared for the pace-up that wouldn't be. Finally, they decided to empty the camp. The vast majority, a few thousand people, they took to so-called a place that would be very good. It was simply shechted them. A few hundred they left over to clean up and clear out, and Shlomo Kalba was one of them. And this is a description of uh, this is a description of what it was like. This is a woman writing. She survived. Her name is Betty Wilma. She took us on the ominous day, on the ominous day of deportation, Eighth Nissen. Betty Wilma took a stroll around the camp with her Kalba as he wished to impart his final instructions regarding the sacred books. He was very worried. They had been able to take, like I said, for the, the, the one exception this camp, they were able to take food, they were able to take clothing, they were able to take sfar, there was farm there. And he was very worried. He would leave, what would happen to Sfarim, Seamus, Kedusha, the Sfarim. So he took her to be able to, um, she should take care of it. And he spoke with her. In this way, and he was strolling down the camp with her as he wished to impart his final instruction of Grand Sacred Books. All of a sudden, Mrs. Kalbach came towards Rav Kalbach from the other side of the so-called Hamburg Blacks. Their final parting was emotionally expressed in words of profound love and sincere admiration, which Rav Kalbach, knowing of their impending separation on earth, imparted an all-embracing warmth and devotion. These words that I overheard due to my proximity, are so transcendental that I do not wish to repeat them, but to keep them in sublime remembrance. I just want to think of it. He's busy with a woman in the taking care of the Seamus. He's walking around which boxes where, what, where. His wife breaks out. 
and speaks with her words so incredible. In the other places, it says they ask this woman, please write these words, make a mark. She refuses. She says those words are so holy, they should never be committed into, they shouldn't be words. And this happens. For all I know, he may have continued giving me afterwards instruction to, with, with the Seamus. How do we understand it? My first reaction was, love Dei Barnash. It's not a human being, it's a Malach. And I said to myself, no. A Malach can't do two shlichus. A human being can. You could be standing in your most profound moment of this world life, telling the woman what you think of her, and all of her loyalty, and your admiration, everything, and you can be worried about the Seamus. Morris says a person has mokum on his head for two pairs of tefillin. If you're an Adam, and you have a tzuras Adam, then there's a mokum for two pairs of tefillin. Then the profoundest and deepest of emotions, and the necessity of taking care of Seamus, the chief, take care of Geniza, it's not a stira, it's incredible. Then his son writes, Son says in the um, his son says in the, uh, on the, the that he wanted a, he asked his father if he could go with him and he said no he said uh, his father told him to stay and then his father um, gave him a hug a long hug and wordlessly walked away. As men and women were separated from one another, the Rav bade in Moshe farewell to his wife and daughters that we saw about. He then embraced his son for a long moment before joining the calm of men being loaded onto the trucks that were transported to destination. The Rav walked tall and somber, his film bulging from his right pocket, and a bundle of the matzahs they had baked from the left one. Exhorting his brothers and sisters were claimed as far as they died, like Hashem, the Rav returned his noble and pure Hashem. Creator with Echad. That was incredible life. I had, I said, molded over. I had two thoughts about it. One was, German Jewry was unique in many ways. One of the ways German Jewry was unique was that in the other, in the other halakim of Klai Yisrael, a, um, a person who wanted to shake off Yiddishkeit moved on. He became a shagetz because he became a shagetz. He didn't need a rub, he didn't need a rub's approval, he didn't need anything like that. You know, he just, he just uh, shook it off and that was it. German Jews were very different. Unless a Herr Rabina would tell him that it's appropriate what he's doing, he wouldn't feel good about himself. Unless there would be a community that would certify and validate that his Yiddishkeit is good Yiddishkeit, he wouldn't do it. Hamburg, unfortunately, had the first permanent reform temple, which was founded in 1880 and lasted 120 years. It had the first semblance 
it, it, there were one or two, even so-called from Rabbanim that sort of gave a heksha, actually not from Germany, and a whole slew of rabbiners of sorts who made this, they, they kind of, they established it as a religion, and that really became the pathway for everyone else, because there's no way in which a German Jew, if no one authorized, if no one validated, he wouldn't do it. So of all the places, the Chorbin of Yiddishkeit in Germany was a lot more due to the quote-unquote leadership than any place else. And there's a terrible period in Cheskel. Vayhid var Hashem el-Aleymar ben Odom hinave al-Roi Yisrael I wanted to say in the Vua for the shepherds of Kal Yisrael hinave v'amata le'em l'Royim tell these Royim koya mar Hashem el-Kim hoi Roi Yisrael woe unto you asher Royim oisam halayatsoin yira Royim you're not feeding the sheep the sheep are feeding you es achel of techelu you're taking its fat, and on and on and on. The, 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 what it is that corrupt and bad leadership does when it takes, when the shepherd becomes the consumer instead of the shepherd. And then he says, I will demand my son back. About the Ungolik, about the tragedy that the Roy Yisrael had brought onto Kal Yisrael. That, that was Hamburg. The 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 the, 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 the Royim that had taken Kali Yisrael and basically exited them out to to to, 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 to the level of assimilation that we saw in the fire and in the churban of Germany in the the last remaining Roya was with was with Kalbach the person who said. He could have escaped, could have gone. And he said, who am I leaving this sheep to? I'm the last, he was the last person, the last rav. It's his achrayis. And a rebbetzin who, who, um, who said, if his job is to do the kehillah, my job is to do with him. Maybe in that churban of German Jewry, of Hamburg specifically, HaKadosh Baruch Hu found that one divine spark. There's a Pasik about what a Roya Neman is like. Kuroya Edre Yire It says about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he will tend the sheep like a shepherd does. Like someone who tends his flock. Bizroya Yukabetz Tloyim in his arms, he gathers up lambs. And in his bosom, he embraces the weak ones, small, the young ones. And the Radak brings a pshat from his father, from Yisuf Kimchi, 
he says, He said the word Edroi here is because when it's your sheep, you watch it very, very differently. Let's read back again that passage. Let's see if we don't hear the Pasuk. They died in his arms. They died holding his hand. They died in the whisper of his prayers. They died in tears. Theirs and his intermingled. Scores of them died every day and every night, pleading for the Ralph to be at the side in the last moments. This great heart treasure, all the heartbreak put out to him as they departed from his hostile earth. His noble soul holding on to every tear, shed in the agony of despair. Is that not a key in the passing? Great Edwin here, this really covers the Maybe that terrible horror. When all the royal fed themselves, the covet, money, whatever it is that they wanted, destroyed a zebra. A shaved Kalyus roll. That Khurbi, after all the fire had taken all the chaff out, one kernel of a Roya Nemon, somebody who stood strong with Emis and embraced with warmth. Person was Mevatan and and could say, Now we have to have a Shaf, now you have to eat Shaf. Now, you can't be Mechal Shabbos. Now, now you have to Mechal Shabbos. Now you're not allowed to Mechal Shabbos. Embracing the same people, maybe, that stood against him and fought with him. That's, maybe that spark had been his gala. That hope. And one more thought. This is written by his brother. And I just want to add one Ha'ara. His brother, I'm told him, was he was the one of those who got out and in England was a rob in, in a, um, New York. He said one of the one of the words that was very chaviv to Yosef Tzvi. One of the verter was Yosef told his brothers, "Pakod Yifka Kimeschem, Akadosh Baruch Hu will." Remember you. So he used to say on the double Russian pocket Yifkoid, there are two Pekidas in the Torah. There's the one who will be in Pakti, Upakati, Aleichem, Chatosam, that Claudius rolls Averis, Akadosh will remember Claudius rolls sins, and give them every time that there's a time of retribution, there's a Pekida. For Ra, for Einish, and there's a pkida of Hashem Pocket of Sorrow, and a pkida of Taif. Manhig, Emes. It says a simon was given over to Klal Yisrael that the Goyal Emes would come at public Pocketity. So everyone thinks it's, uh, it's, I'll say these two words, and then the cash is obvious, so everybody knows it, and so on. A Manhig Emes. Is someone that can say, and a manic emis also has to say, Vashem Pakat. Manic has to say the emis, has to be able to thunder and say, If you leave, you leave Klaus Yisrael, you'll bring eternal shame for yourself. And a manic has to be able to take and to embrace all these people 
in the dying moments and take them in. Pokrit Pokadati is the simon of money. That was, those, it was a word that was, it was a word that was chaviv to him because it was him. His brother writes, unfortunately, the second part of the Pasuk, Balisim is that he said we weren't soicha. Maybe we weren't soicha that his bones would come out. But if we're misbeining in the atzmias, the etzim of the person, what he was, an incredible person, someone who was brilliant and used all of his brilliance, Pavelis Hashem, someone who was passionate, someone who was able to give Lithuanian jury the structure they needed, the seder they needed, the, 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 the curriculum they needed to produce a Dorian and be able to take from Lithuanian jury the Uimekatayra, the Avasatayra, the Chvivasatayra, the Nishama, and bring it back and try to infuse it in German jury. Person who who whose Kokula, his, his entire self, was dedicated and devoted for Stibur. His own kids didn't watch them. You see, they were a person who could keep in his mind the Gniza and the Tfilim, the, the Gniza and the Sfarim, and departing from his wife together. A person that was cradled so much. Maybe for able to to absorb some of it, then the etzim remains. If then we took something out of that fight, out of that korban, and did something. I was the elephant of the